I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. I'm John Patrick Higgins. These are my strange stories. Why not relax, kick off your shoes, and enjoy the peculiar worlds inside my head? Inside John Patrick Higgins. The Horrible Men Once upon a time, there were some men, and they were horrible. They were covered in hair. They said, pull my finger, and laughed when they farted. They left the toilet seat up and wet the bathroom floor. The pubes were everywhere. They never washed the bedsheets or the pots or their bodies, and at night their yellow toenails snagged on the bedsheets while they snored on their backs, grunting and snuffling like pigs. But pigs are, in fact, scrupulously clean animals. The men sometimes had feelings, and this confused and frightened them. When it happened, they got drunk until the feelings went away, while they were relaxed enough to hit other horrible men, or any women who may have strayed too near. The horrible men gathered in pubs to talk about the sport they enjoyed. The sport was played by other, richer, horrible men, But the horrible men believed they were somehow responsible for the sporting victories through drinking heavily and shouting. If the sports ended badly for the horrible men, it was someone else's responsibility. Either the horrible men of another town or the manager of the horrible men's own team. When the sports were going well, the manager was an exalted figure. He was borne aloft on the shoulders of the horrible men amid raucous cheers and happy, emphatic swearing. There was no greater hero to the horrible men than the manager in victory. But if the team failed, the manager would be ritually sacrificed, consumed by the very men who had previously lionised him. They ate him up until there was not one scrap of him left. And they never looked back. There was always another manager to fall in love with and to destroy. The horrible men did their jobs, and they were very good at them. Sometimes they would talk about their jobs with their eyes closed and their arms folded for hours and hours, even though no one had asked them to. 
They had lots of opinions, even on subjects they had never thought about. The horrible men secretly worried about their penises. They sat in the dark at night, thinking about their penises. For such a small part of their bodies, complications from penis ownership took up an inordinate amount of their mental energy. There was always something to worry about. Was it too small? Was it aesthetically pleasing? Did it smell? Was it normal? Would it work if called upon to perform sexually? Would it ever be called upon to perform sexually again? The horrible men wound away fretful hours in the darkness, worrying about their penises, time they would have preferred to have spent reading magazines about watches or memorising cricket scores. But when the horrible men talked to other horrible men about their penises, a strange transformation occurred. Their penises had become enormous and sweet-smelling and attractive to all women, like a foaming pony's neck. These penises bore no relation to the bald, timorous mice that haunted their lonely nights. They took on the properties of a battering ram, a fisherman's law, a peacock's feather, or the prow of a Viking longship. It was all very curious. But there was often a discrepancy between what the horrible men thought and what they said to one another. To listen to them talk, loudly, never listening, jockeying for position, you wouldn't think they had a care in the world. But the horrible men had many, many cares. Worry marbled them like fat. Some of these worries were so deep and fundamental, they didn't even know they were there. Basic weaknesses that they were unable to perceive, and which occasionally erupted, bulging out of them like emotional hernias. This would be the first time that the horrible men had to confront these problems, and it would confuse them. The horrible men spent a lot of time being confused, and in order to cope, they ignored the things that confused them, focusing instead on things they could understand, like sports and machinery and the real world. The real world was the place where the horrible men lived. It was a cold, barren place, without basic amenities, full of threats and real politic, where nice guys finished last and losers went to the wall. The real world was a Darwinian dystopia, red in tooth and claw and full of pragmatic, horrible alumni of the school of hard knocks. Far off in the distance were the ivory towers, which were full of the horrible men's traditional enemies, women, experts and the young. The horrible men scorned the ivory towers and went about the business of actually getting things done. Unlike the Namby Pambies and Airy Fairies who believed in the magic money tree. There was no magic money tree. The horrible men knew that at least. The horrible men lived in a delicate ecosystem that while it was definitely an impregnable iron fortress seemed like it could be pierced as easily as the skin of a bubble. So the horrible men built up elaborate fictions as defences which proved surprisingly durable as long as all the men who propped them up believed in them. So they did, and they all lived adequately ever after, chuntling gently with rage about inconsequential things and ignoring the more terrifying things as long as they didn't affect them directly. One day, a horrible young man woke up in his filthy bed. He brushed his teeth and washed his balls and dressed in yesterday's socks, having given them a connoisseur's sniff and concluded they were good for another week. 
In the bathroom he pissed expressionistically, standing on a carpet of hair which kept his feet warm, far warmer than the bare tiles beneath. He shut the front door behind him and smelled the cool morning air. It was another fine, manly day. There was a faint tang of beer fart and testosterone with nary a breath of ozone. Smashing. As he walked down the street, head down, meeting no man's gaze, the cracks on the pavement seemed to be rungs on a career ladder. He was going to do his job. He could have talked about his job for hours and regularly did so to weaker men who were obliged to listen. But he never thought about his job. He never had to. He knew it backwards, so there was nothing to think about. He was a contented cog in an indifferent machine. "'Give me your money,' said a man. The young man looked up. This seemed to be a challenge. The man asking for his money was big, but he was quite old, perhaps thirty-five. He had a good beard, an impressively wild cast in his eyes, but he was running to fat and his naked elbows poked through his jumper. The young man did some quick manmatics. No, he said. Well, said the other man, but I'm bigger than you. Well, that is true, but I am younger and fitter than you are, so I'm not sure the normal rules apply. I'm not sure I like this questioning of my authority, said the bigger man, but he didn't sound quite certain. Well, there you go said the young horrible man. They stared at each other. We seem to be at a bit of an impasse. Yes. The two men stood there, not fighting. What should we do? I'm not sure, said the big man, but then his face brightened. Wait a minute, he said, and he began to rummage in his battered school satchel, from which he produced a large, cruel-looking knife. He stabbed the younger man with it. How? said the young horrible man. Give me your money, said the big man. I expect you've earned it, said the younger man. The big man punched him unconscious by way of reply. The young man woke up in a light, airy room. The first thing he noticed was that the room didn't smell. Not of anything. The next thing he noticed was that he was on a soft, comfortable bed and his knife wound had been dressed. The last thing he noticed before the woman came in was that he was tied down. The woman's movements seemed sly and undemonstrative, and the man found it difficult to anticipate her actions. Her facial expression seemed unknowable compared to the traffic-light simplicity of men's faces. He could read bared teeth or narrowed eyes, but her expressions were like clouds on a windy day, unmoored and meaningless. She kept her distance. She was cautious. He understood that. Where am I? he said. You're safe, she said, bafflingly. That was not a location. Who are you? he said. A friend. Well, this was infuriating. Why couldn't she answer a simple question? Besides, it wasn't even true. He had ten friends, and she was not one of them. He would have remembered. Why am I your prisoner, woman? Because I'm scared of you. He was lying down, tied to a bed with a fresh wound, and she was still scared of him. 
He was the vulnerable one. She could finish him off at any time, and there was nothing he could do about it. And she was scared? Was this how it was with women? That they would constantly say the opposite thing that you would expect? He'd had enough. Don't be stupid. I'm tied up and powerless. I'm the one who should be scared. And are you? No. Why not? she said, moving slightly closer. I, I don't know, he said. I don't think I have all of the required information. If you were a man, I'd be scared, but you're a woman, so I can't possibly anticipate what you're going to do next. And that doesn't scare you. It didn't, but he wished it did. He missed the certainty of fear. Her strange and slippery manner was unquantifiable. Suddenly all sorts of strange, subsidiary emotions seemed to be pushing away from the clotted mass of his feelings. It made him mildly nauseous. He wondered if his wounds could be infected. "'What have you done to me?' he said. "'You were injured. I found you and I brought you here. I cleaned and dressed your wound.' "'Why?' she shrugged. "'Let me loose,' he said. "'No. Why not? You might kill me.' "'I promise I won't,' he said badly. She took a step back. He doubled down on the lie. I promise I won't. I love you. She walked toward him, her hand behind her back. There was a pregnant moment before she dropped a plated sandwich on the bed in front of him. Eat, she said, and turned her back on him. I need a wee, he said. But she was already gone. She came back regularly, and he grew to enjoy her visits. His pain decreased as his wound healed, and he paid less attention to it. Instead, he became increasingly interested in the woman. She was not like anyone he had ever met, quite apart from her bosoms, which were distracting even though he didn't quite know why. He was slowly beginning to read her face. It was tricky. Pockets of things seemed to be happening all over it all the time, as though tiny emotional potatoes were boiling. He was pleased with that description, though it worried him that he was now using metaphors. She hadn't untied him, so he was unable to use his body strength to subdue her, so he was stuck there, listening to what she said as she used her confusing words. He was dizzied at first. It was like stepping into a snowstorm, but lately he had managed to negotiate the tumult with a little more assurance. On one occasion he had made her laugh. He hadn't intended to, but the sound was extraordinary, and he wanted to hear it again. He tried to develop a formula for making her laugh, but as soon as he started she stopped, and as soon as he stopped she started. It was both infuriating and intoxicating. He became greedy for her laughter. One day she came to him and she looked different. He read her face clumsily. She was frightened, but there was something else there too, something that wasn't fear. Something, was it hopeful? It was as though she were anticipating something. She gave a joyless smile and her forehead was creased. Why are you scared? he said. Why do you think I'm scared? I can read your face, he said proudly. Also there is something else, something that isn't scared. You're right, she said. 
Today is the day I'm going to let you go. You no longer think I'm going to kill you? I don't think you will. I hope not. I expect we'll find out. I expect we will, said the man, adding, I don't want to kill you, but don't make any sudden movements. He laughed, and so did she eventually. She cut the ropes that bound him, and they both sat there on the bed. What do I do now, he said. You leave, said a voice from without. Three women dressed in golden armour came into the room. They were carrying spears. The woman on the bed looked down. What is this? said the man. You have to go, said one of the guards. We can't risk having a fit young man here. Go. But I'm not going to turn on you, said the young man. I've changed. I'm emotionally intelligent. The woman looked up and smiled at him, and his freed hand reached out for hers. Nonsense, said the guard. You're a man, a thoughtless killer, a mindless brute. You must leave. Very well, said the man. I will go. But let me just tell you this. In truth, this pretty speech was for the woman on the bed and not for the women's arms. I have changed. It's true I was once just a horrible man, but thanks to this woman's kindness and care, I have changed. I have become reasonably adept at reading facial expressions, and I understand the value of listening but not fixing. I will go, and I will live among men, but I will teach them what she has taught me, and they shall understand beauty and sophistication, and they will be much improved. The guards jabbed their spears at him, and the man backed out of the room with tears in his eyes, to the amazement of the assembled women. And the young man was as good as his word. He went back to the men and he told them of emotion and feeling and truth and beauty. And the other men were amazed. So they killed him and ate him. Inside John Patrick Higgins was brought to you by the colour blue and the letter G. Written and performed by John Patrick Higgins, it was produced and edited by Graham Watson. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.